Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I am your host, Heather Evans. If you've turned on your television recently, you've probably seen a lot of debate over books in general, from what should be taught in schools to particular books being in libraries or the hands of children to book burning sponsored by so-called pastors. Given all of the discussion regarding what people should or should not be reading about these days, I've invited two guests on the program today to talk about their research on this topic because book banning isn't in any way new in this country. My first guest is Carol Mason. Carol is university research professor at the University of Kentucky. She has published widely on social movements in the United States, including three books that explore different aspects of the rise of the right since the 1960s. One of those books, Reading Appalachia from Left to Right, was published by Cornell University Press and analyzes the role of conservatives in the 1974 textbook controversy in Canal County, West Virginia. So Carol, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you so much, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we have a lot of young people who listen to this program, including my students, and they may not remember a time, honestly, before 9-11. I was shocked the other day when I asked my class, how many of you were born before 9-11? And only three hands shot up, and those three people were months old. I think they would be stunned to hear about what happened in West Virginia in 1974. Can you break that down for us? What exactly happened? Well, it started in the spring. In April 74, the Kanawha County Board of Education gathered for what everybody expected would be a routine meeting in Charleston, West Virginia. And on the agenda was a report from a textbook selection committee that had worked about 10 months to decide which new language arts curriculum to recommend for adoptions for all levels, uh, grades, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade. And the selection committee was very dutiful. It uh, described the books they chose and their procedures for ensuring that the books that they chose met a state sanctioned mandate to include multi-ethnic and multi-racial literature in the new curriculum. And so this was a very mundane kind of meeting and everybody was surprised when an objection came from the only female board member. And with a flurry of accusations, she succeeded in delaying, but not stopping the purchase of this curriculum. And so throughout the summer and the fall of 1974, thousands of protesters got mobilized objecting to these books, as well as to the board selection process. That's really interesting, and especially in terms of thinking about today's debates. Okay, so the, the person who started all of this, her name was Alice Moore, I believe. What did your research uncover about her? Well, Alice Moore had moved to West Virginia from Mississippi, so she wasn't a native Charlestonian, and she had um, come to Charleston several years before the textbook controversy, and she campaigned to join the school board on an anti-sex education platform. And a lot of people recognized that some of the people who were helping her do that were John Birch Society members. And so in, in some ways she was, uh, from the historical point of view, she was like a lot of women organizers who in the 50s and 60s helped shape 
the post-war right. Um, and these historians call these women um, organizers, kitchen table activists or housewife populists or suburban warriors who were mothers of conservatism. And they stayed behind the scenes and did campaigns that helped bolster the conservative movement in the 50s and the 60s. But in the 70s, they came out from behind the scenes. And I think that um, Ms. Moore is someone who was definitely one of those people. Phyllis Schlafly was another person, another exemplar of, um, of, the, of the new right. But Phyllis Schlafly was, a, was you know, a very uh, uh, legal-minded person and she was a strategist who was well-known and uh, almost too well-heeled to appeal to the working class. And I think that's why the new right strategists were so deeply interested in the textbook controversy in West Virginia, because there they saw how well a mother from a state known for its working class activism could capture the spotlight. So what were her objections to these books? Well, what's interesting about it is that if you look at all of the objections throughout the entire ordeal from 74 to 75, you notice that arguments against the books shifted, they changed. And although different arguments were all there at all times, there was a discernible shift of the argument that reflected, I think, an overall trend in the conservative movement. So some book protesters used old right arguments that the books were evidence of communists who wanted to brainwash students, or they said that the books were black power attempts to convert students to revolutionary and militant ways. And so that old right rhetoric against public education was prominent at the beginning of the textbook controversy. But as it went on and into the 19 and into 1975, the prevailing arguments changed against um, the prevailing arguments against the books changed and they weren't about race or communism explicitly. The later arguments were framed more as a populist matter of protecting our heritage and our children. And so instead of the black power movement or communists, according to this later prevailing argument, the new boogeyman was secular humanism promoted by elitist educators who shouldn't be allowed to tell parents what to, their kids should learn, right? So this stance was solidified for a national audience by the Heritage Foundation and their strategists wrote up the lessons they learned from West Virginia in a book called Blackboard Tyranny, which was a call to arms as well as a how-to book for parents so that they could back off from anti-communist conspiracy stories and focus on affecting political change at the local level. Now, you mentioned that there were protesters, lots of protesters who were involved with this. And when I was reading some of your work on this, you mentioned the, the violence that happened in that community. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what, 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 what did people experience there? Well, there were a lot of protesters by the thousands, and it really sort of came to a head in the summer um, after a particular uh, Board of Education hearing in June. The citizens showed up to debate the new textbooks, and the board listened to them for nearly three hours. And then they voted 
two, three to two to go ahead and purchase the books. And this just inflamed everything. The protesters were very upset. They felt ignored by the board's June decision to purchase the curriculum, and they kept mobilizing Kanawha County residents throughout the summer. And when the academic year began in the fall, some parents pulled their kids out of public school and into homeschooling, and the organized protests increased. And that, those organized protests included sympathy strikes, by coal miners and some really uh, violent um, uh, uh, bombings of schools. And so in October and November, tensions were so high that members of both sides of the controversy issued threats and committed acts of violence. Um, but by far the most that got the, the most that got the attention were the bombings of the schools. Um, and there were plans to bomb buses even. Um, so in January, um, the October, November, things really heated up. December and January, things started to cool down a little bit, but there was a kind of apex to it um, in January where the Ku Klux Klan made this big media splash on the West Virginia Capitol steps. And if you've ever been to Charleston, you know what a beautiful Capitol building we have. And so to see the Ku Klux Klan up there with flags and all that denouncing the books, um, that was a big deal. And, and legal hearings regarding the October bombings of the schools also began in January. So I sort of see January as this tipping point where, where the protests started to scale back because those who had been involved in violence were being, um, were, um, being brought to justice, or investigated and the most unsavory elements of the protesters, the Ku Klux Klan were um, front and center. So when spring of 1975 came around, the coal strikes were over, the big rallies were gone and the books were back in the classrooms. Wow. So I have so many more questions for you, but I, uh, due to time, I have one more that I think that we can, we can answer here today, or that I hope that you can answer today. In thinking about the past and comparing it to now, what can the fight over the textbooks in West Virginia teach us about how to, I guess, deal with the events that we see today at school boards or think about those events that are happening today at school boards? I think that back in 19... 74, um, the multi-ethnic language arts curriculum was kind of offered up as corruption that needed to be opposed, needed to be fought. And now people are pointing to lots of different things that are supposed corruptions, cabals, conspiracies that they want the working class people to fight against. And so I think that the one thing that we see today that we saw back then is that right-wing forces, and I mean this from mainstream conservatives to militant insurrectionists, these right-wing forces are again in a state of transition. And if the textbook controversy was any harbinger of what works for right-wing America, they're surely gonna use more moral panics over education and they will tap into conflicts in Appalachia to their advantage. Thank you so much for being on the program today. My pleasure. It was fun to talk to you, Heather. Hi, everyone. If you are just now tuning into the program, 
Welcome to Red, Wine Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. You just heard uh, my conversation with Carol Mason, who is a university research professor at the University of Kentucky and has written about book banning in West Virginia. So our conversation has revolved around Appalachia generally. My second guest on the program today is Emily Knox, who is an associate professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is the author and editor of three books titled Book Banning in 21st Century America, Trigger Warnings, History, Theory, Context, and Foundations of Information Ethics. Her next book, Foundations of Intellectual Freedom, will be released in fall of 2022. Emily's articles have been published in the Library Quarterly, Library and Information Science Research, and the Journal of Intellectual Freedom and Privacy. So Emily, thanks so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So obviously, I've invited you on to talk about these cases of book banning that we are seeing now, which, as my previous guest, Carol Mason, discussed, isn't at all new for our country. What does it mean when somebody says that a group wants to ban a book? There are a bunch of definitions, right? And in some of your work, you you kind of stay away from the word ban, correct? That's correct. So what I usually talk about are book challenges. And these are generally when someone asks that a book be reconsidered for its current placement, either in school curriculum or in a library collection. So we call it a challenge and not a ban because a ban means that the book has been removed. And that is not always what happens um, when someone brings this request. So some of the work that you do looks at the types of books that are typically targeted for book so-called bannings or challenges. What are the characteristics of those books? One of the things that we see a lot now is that books that could fall under the general category of diverse books are being challenged quite a bit. Um, These are books that are uh, generally concerned with uh, people who are black, indigenous, or people of color, um, people who are LGBT and the members of the LGBTQIA um, community. I, I tend to use the definition from the We Need Diverse Books movement um, when I talk about diverse books. But actually, I would say a broader category for these is that they are actually realistic or naturalistic, usually fiction, right? They describe the world as it is, which has actually been a, um, a type of literature that has been challenged for many, many years since actually the in- invention of the novel. So do challenges come from one side of the political spectrum over others? So there are a couple of ways of looking at this depending on your level of analysis. So it is true that challenges especially right now, tend to come from the right. But I would say that that's kind of a limiting idea of looking at book challenges. To me, book challenges are actually about reading. Um, And people on both the left, the right, or any side um, of the political spectrum have, um, are very, strong believers in the idea that reading matters. So for example, if you look through the list carefully of the American Library Association's um, 
most challenged book lists, you'll see different types of books. Yes, you will see, especially right now, diverse books, but you'll also see books that um, were accused of having stereotypes in them. Um, you'll see books that have been challenged on account of the um, behavior of the author. So those books tend to come, those sorts of challenges come to tend to come more from the left. But I also think it's important to know that a lot of the books that would have been challenged from the left, in fact, are not published very much anymore. So um, there was a uh, books like Little Black Sambo, um, you know, those sorts of books were removed from children's and young adult collections in around the 70s, the 60s and 70s. So the ones that remain and that end up being challenged tend to be ones that are part of the canon. So that would be something like the Little House books or um, at the moment there's a lot of discussion about To Kill a Mockingbird. To me, these are really more um, continuations of the canon wars uh, that happened in the 60s and 70s, mostly on college campuses, but of course that always trickles down to both secondary and elementary ed. So what type of method do you use when you look at these cases? Oh wow, I have not <laughs> asked this in a while. Um, so I uh, do discourse analysis. Um, what I do is I use three different um, sources to collect that discourse. Um, I do Freedom of Information Act requests to um, boards, so either the public board, public school library, public uh, library board or the school library board, and I just ask them for anything related to a particular case. So, you know, it's a basic journalistic method. And it's really funny because sometimes I get a lot of information. I've had people send me 500 pages um, worth of material plus uh, recorded um, hearings. Um, and I've had people send me uh, letters from lawyers saying that they're not going to send me anything. Um, I also have interviewed challengers <laughs> in the past. I haven't been able to do that a lot recently. And then I go to hearings. Um, if at all possible. Those are much more difficult for me to get to now. But basically what you can see is I try to get transcripts of people's actually actual arguments. So I use those forms. Generally when there's a book challenge, people fill out something called a request for consideration form. So I use the arguments in those forms. I use transcripts from the hearings. I use transcripts from the interviews. Um, and I put that all together in one big data set um, and I uh, basically code it for common themes. So that's really what my book is about. Um, I look to see what do these people say that's very similar. I call this the discourse of censorship um, and I really just try to say no matter what the book is, so I actually don't focus on the book with that data. I focus on how are they t justifying removing this book or relocating this book or restricting this book, whatever they want to do. Um, what are the arguments they're using? How um, do they talk about the books themselves? And I try to stay away from what the book is about because I'm really much more interested in reading 
and books as objects um, and how people think about the practice of reading. So how do you think that social media has affected the discourse surrounding these books? So there have always been um, organizations that have been involved in, um, let's just say, challenging books in general. Basically reviewing books, having lists of books that you might want to look at. My colleague Loretta Gaffney has an excellent book on this, um, also published by Ronan Littlefield. But what we see now is that um, social media has just made it much easier to, for people to talk to each other. So if you are um, located in, say, Seattle, Washington, it's very easy to see, say, oh, I see that there's a list of books in Texas. I am going to check and see if these books are on my kids' curriculum. Not only that, I'm going to go on Facebook and see if there are other parents who are interested in thinking about these books. So what it really is, is a network phenomenon. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's, you know, you're no longer just the parent alone looking at the books, going to the, uh, to the um, school board meetings by yourself. You now have a community of people who may also feel similarly, similarly to you. Yeah, I've actually seen that play out here in Virginia as well on social media where you'll have a parent find something in a book that they find questionable. Then they might take screenshots of that and put it up on Facebook and then try to see if other parents are willing to come to those meetings with them. So you're absolutely right. Social media has made it a lot easier to organize. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you actually alluded to in one of your first uh, responses to a question I asked you earlier which is about diverse voices. Why do you think that it's important for students to be exposed to diverse voices? So it's important because we live in the world. I'm just going to start with that. Yes, um, please. We live in a diverse world. So I, I, I really believe that this is a reaction to the browning of America. We are, we're actually going through major societal change right now. I don't think that's always clear, um, but, um, and the pandemic has just exacerbated that societal change. We have no idea what our world will look like on the other side. What is the other side? Um, we had a major backlash election um, to the election of Barack Obama with the election of Donald Trump um, then we also had this insurrection. We have much more awareness of violence against black people, especially with the murder of George Floyd. Um, we have movements um, that come from surprising places. I mean, we're not in Canada, but as we're talking, there is a major uh, protest happening with truckers on COVID restrictions in Canada, which is very surprising. Um, there are a lot of things that are just in flux. And I think one of the major uh, phenomena that happened, especially with um, education, is that during the pandemic, kids were in class at home. And I'm pretty sure that one thing that happened with that 
is that parents were able to see how education works, both good and bad, um, and were much more aware of what goes on in school, what their kids are reading, how they're doing it, all of these things, because school was just at home. Um, when you bring all of these things together, um, you can see why there is so much anxiety and fear. I think when it comes to diverse voices, this is really related to the idea of the default protagonist, right? The idea that almost all of our works of art um, for many, 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 many years were simply about white heterosexual uh, men. And that is just not true anymore. Um, I tell my students, uh, apparently somewhere in Pennsylvania, someone put Lola goes to the library on um, a list. <laughs> it's this adorable children's book about Lola going to the library. But the important thing is that Lola is, Lola is a little black girl. And more than likely, and the people who wrote and illustrated this book are also white, more than likely if they had done that book 20 years ago, 10 years ago, Lola would have been a little white girl. But they made this decision. And that is really the change. There's not simply a single story that we tell about people who are um, in um, marginalized groups that we no longer have this world of a single protagonist that is being really fought against in many different parts of our culture. And I just really see this as really a lot of retrenchment, right? Um, how do I, what does it mean if I'm not, um, if the things that I was told about the United States are not necessarily true? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my children? So Emily, my last question for you is actually about looking forward, forward to the future. I've seen a lot of people say they're very concerned about this. They think, you know, they don't want this to happen in their hometowns. They don't want to see this happen at their school boards. And there, some of these suggestions have been, well, send a book to your library, you know, buy these banned books and send them to your libraries or hold a, a reading with other people in your community and read these books. What are some ways that citizens can get actively involved in this process? So what people can really do is get involved in your local school, your local public library, uh, run for school board, when there is a school board meeting, go to the school board meeting, bring your kids. Um, if there is a challenge in your neighborhood, in your, sorry, in your district, have your kids testify about why, why the book is important to them. Actually hearing from kids is the most important thing. Um, this is an argument from between adults but it's the kids who actually talk about why these books matter and how it changes, you know, how they think about the world. So the other thing you can do is um, support organizations that support um, 
uh, institutions and people when books get challenged. So um, I'm on the board of the National Coalition Against Censorship. They have a Kids Right to Read program, which I really recommend people take a look at and consider donating to. I'm also a past president of the Freedom to Read Foundation, which we call the legal arm of the American Library Association. Um, they uh, really look at court cases that are involved in um, how it, in anything related to the Freedom to Read or uh, law related to libraries. Thank you, Emily, for mentioning those organizations and the other ways that citizens can get involved in this issue. You know, at its basic foundation, education is supposed to expose us to new ideas existing outside what we have present in our own lives. And one of the ways that we get exposed to those new ideas is through reading. So thanks again to both of my guests for being on the program. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you missed any piece of this broadcast, you can listen to it again wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.